someone asked me last week in commenting how they've been enjoying this journey through the Gospel of John, how long do you take, do I think it'll take me to finish it? And my response was, I'll let you know when I get there. Because uh, I have no idea. Uh, but I too am enjoying it. John chapter 5, my subject this morning is, do you want to be made well? Quick question before we get started. Does anybody here today like or enjoy being sick? Does thinking about having a headache bring you unbounded joy? Do times when you have a cold or the flu bring fond memories to your mind? Does having sore or aching muscles make you just grateful to be alive? Or perhaps something worse. Does the idea or experience of having a broken bone bring a smile? Does the notion of a head injury or food poisoning translate for you blessings? I won't even ask the silly questions as it pertains to some type of debilitating physical condition or a terminal illness. But the bottom line is that as is something inbred and programmed into our human nature, we really don't like being sick or ill. Now, we may know people who like acting or faking that they're sick so they can get something out of us or get some type of advantage. But that's very different than actually wanting to or looking forward to being sick. As we look at this passage, I just want you to keep that whole train of thought in your mind. John chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse number 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There was, and now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick, People, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I was coming, while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, 
See you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So let's review the place where this all occurred. The pool of Bethesda, which in Hebrew translates um, house of mercy or house of flowing mercy. It was a spring surrounded by walls that had a roof. Looked like an outyard courtyard. Tradition held that when an when the waters stirred, it was by an angel that stirred the waters, and that when they were stirred, whoever stepped into the pool first was healed of whatever ailment they had. No matter what the disease, they would be instantly made well. Archaeologists have uncovered this ancient site of porches surrounding a pool. The sick, the lame, the infirm would spend the entire day, many overnight, just laying there. Some would be there 24 hours a day for months and years. Some would have family members bring them there each morning and then collect them at the end of the day. Since they had no income, many would spend the day while they were waiting for the waters to be stirred, begging or trying to find some way to sustain themselves. This was a place, basically, of collected human suffering. And it attracted to a faint hope that they might get into that pool first. All waiting to be possibly the lucky winners in the Bethesda pool lottery. Now imagine for a moment if you were passing by what you would see there. The sights, the sounds. You would see the deaf who would have no way of knowing that the waters were being stirred because they wouldn't be able to hear it. And they'd be able to see when people were moving, but by that point it would be too late. You would see the blind who might hear things but not know what they were hearing until it was too late. You would have the lame, once the waters were stirred, how would they get to the pool depending on how far back in the courtyard they were? You had the young. You had the old. You had men. You had women. Most historical accounts of the time say they would probably be hundreds, if not more, sitting in this pool, sitting by this pool day by day. And remember, this is dry, arid Jerusalem. So I'll let you imagine in your own minds the scents and the smells of that area. The sounds, sounds of pain and anguish and hunger, cries for mercy, cries for relief. And in the middle of this extremely unpleasant place, a scene that would change or, or challenge every one of our senses, Jesus walks in. He walks into the part of town that most good church folk would never want to be a part of. So the question begins from the outset, are we willing to walk into places most other people avoid? Are we willing not just into specific uh, of physical places, are we willing to walk into situations in people's lives that other people would avoid? Jesus walks into the place that the average person with a home, a family, a good-paying job would probably never want to get anywhere near. He walks into those places, sadly, that most Christians avoid because he cares. Aren't you glad Jesus cares? Because he loves everyone equally. And we have a problem with that. 
no matter what they are going through, and no matter what brought them to the place of pain, Jesus loves everyone equally, even if the pain that they're suffering was self-inflicted. I just can't imagine hearing Jesus in facing somebody who's in pain, basically saying, good for you. That's not the Savior I serve. The focus of this story is that Jesus walked up to one man who had been there for 38 years. Most of us lose our Christian testimony after 38 minutes of a headache. And he had been in this place for 38 years. Now, I've been asked, and I'm sure in reading these stories, it might just dawn on you. This place was surrounded by hundreds. Why this one man? And this is where I get to be transparent. I have no idea. But this is what the story tells us. Jesus came up to one man. 38 years. Most of us get cranky at just a few days of being ill. This man had been coming to the pool for as long as many of us have children. Not sure if he spent the whole day or night there. That level of detail is not provided. All we know is that he came to the pool each day hoping to be healed. And we want to be honest. As believers, it can be tough to hold on to hope for 38 years. Hope that trouble in the marriage will get better. Hope that people that are close to you that have drifted from the Lord will come back to the Lord. Hope that people who aren't treating you right will start treating you right. Hope that someone you really care about will stop running away from Jesus. Hope for those close to us to see the one, the one and only Jesus who can bring true healing and restoration into their lives because this was a situation of people who really had no hope. But church, we have hope today. Hope in Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Deliverer. He is our Healer. He is our Peace. And He is our Hope. People today are looking for hope to go off the Tina Turner song in all the wrong places. People are looking for comforting hope in families. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't love and find joy in our families, but that's not where my hope is today. People are looking for lasting hope in the government. I'm not even going to start talking about that one. People are looking for inspiring hope in the latest celebrity that's come onto the scene. We're looking for hope as a nation, as a people, in all the wrong places. Now, we should pray for our country, and we should pray for our leaders, and we should love our families, and we should pray for those public figures for the platform of influence that they have. But they are not, nor can they ever be, my hope. My hope is not in America getting it right. My hope is not in the, I pray for the American government that it would begin to follow and go back to following many biblical principles. But my hope for the future is not in them getting it right. My hope is one day Jesus will split the eastern sky and come for his church. Amen. That is my hope. Amen. 
Now, I will keep praying and acting in ways that are, that are in tune with my faith. But my hope is not here. My hope is in Jesus. But the main focus of this story isn't hope or the places of pain Christians should be in today. It's the question that Jesus asked to a man who had been sick, ill, infirmed, lame for 38 years. In verse 6 of what we read, he asks, do you want to be made well? Really? Can you honestly imagine what your response would have been to that question? What you might have said after 38 years of being lame from any type of ailment that has completely taken you out of society and made you in a separate category. And you've been that way for almost four decades. And Jesus comes and says, do you want to be made well? Most people I know would have said, are you kidding? Those with a sarcastic streak in them would have said, no, I'm good. No need, I'm just here, look around you. I'm here for the good times. What a great place of joy to just enjoy nature. Of course I want to be made well. What a question. But that's not how the man answers, to his credit. He answers honestly in his despair. In verse 7, Sir, I do not have anyone to help me into the water when it is stirred by the angel. Some would see Jesus' question as insensitive. But Jesus doesn't ask insensitive questions. He sees the man beyond the infirmity. You see, many people in these situations... Yes, they need relief. They might need healing. They need deliverance. But they also need to understand that in so many of us, when we've been like that for so long, our illnesses, our infirmities, our conditions have become an identity. It's all we've been known as. And in fact, it's impacted and identifies how all of my interactions are. I interact with everyone based on the condition I am in. And for many, and I've seen this, there even becomes a level of comfort. It's how I'm known. I've shared my testimony about I grew up with a speech impediment, and I, I stuttered. And I share the testimony to demonstrate the power of God, but I learned a long time ago, I will not be identified as someone who had a speech impediment. I will be identified as someone who Jesus Christ stepped into his life and made him whole. We can become these places. Let's give God praise for that. It's too easy, especially when the condition or the situation that you're in or the unfair treatment or the bad relationship, when it's gone on for so long to become identified by it. But church, we are in a culture right now that is struggling on so many ways with identity. We try to re-identify ourselves almost every day. Here's our identity. It's in Jesus. He is my identity. 
well, what's your sexual orientation? I'm a Christian. What's your relationship orientation? I'm a Christian. Everything about me starts from that point. Well, as a Christian, what are you? Well, let's turn to my instruction book and we'll figure out what I am according to what the Word of God tells me. That's my identity. Not your infirmity, not your gender of the day, not whatever you think has happened to you. And we don't ever want to let the different situations that have traumatized us become our identity. They need to be dealt with. We need to be sensitive to those. But they are not who you are. You are a child of a king. You are a son or daughter of the king of the universe. You belong to Jesus. This man was ready. Take up your bed and walk. He was ready to be identified in a different way. And Jesus changes everything. How many have learned that Jesus just changes everything? If we want him to. That's why I don't like to sugarcoat the realities of the life of following Jesus. Oh yes, there is unimaginable joy. Peace beyond measure. And the power to move mountains. But let's be clear. In the Christian life, the sun is not always shining. There are rainy days. Any of you who tried to get to church two weeks ago know there are rainy days. We go through stuff. But this man is ready, and the moment he is ready, Jesus said simply, take up your bed and walk. Verse 8. And immediately he is healed. Immediately he is no longer one of those immediately he can experience the life that God intended him to have immediately he not only can stand but think about this those of you that have any medical training he not only can stand but he's in no need of physical therapy he can walk and as we will see later Jesus not only offered him physical healing but spiritual healing as well When Jesus heals you, let's get this clear, you're healed right. The rain in his life has stopped and the sun is shining brightly. Now, how many of you know people, and please, if they're here, don't look at them. But how many know people that on your best day, they are your certain rain cloud? They just come and You've got great news to share, and they'll be the first person to, yeah, but you know, that's really not that great. We all have people like that. I like to call them rainmakers. Those who can see a storm cloud in every sunny day. You're walking, but don't you know what day it is? And sadly for this man who had just been healed from 38 years of not being able to walk, the first people he meets are rainmakers. What are you doing? I'm walking. Well, no, forget about that. You're carrying your mat. Excuse me. I'm walking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that later. But 
you're doing something that is against the laws we've created about what can happen on the Sabbath. I'm walking. But you're breaking the religious codes that we've set up. Do you find joy in disobeying God? People, I'm walking. Don't you see that I'm walking? And the man says, and we need to understand the culture of the time. It really was this stranglehold of authority that the religious leaders had in the nation of Israel, even occupied by Rome. So no one wanted to get on the bad side of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, or the Sadducees. No one. That meant social and basically even political death as far as being called an outcast and even expelled. So even in the midst of joy, you didn't want to do anything to get on a leader's bad side. And so the first thing he does when he's accused of basically conjuring up this whole thing of why are you walking and, and, and walking wasn't the issue. It was carrying his mat. And so what does he do? The typical human thing. He passes the buck. Well, this man who made me well told me to take up my mat and walk. Because he was breaking one of the 39 laws that the leaders had set up in keeping with the, the Old Testament law about keeping the Sabbath holy. You know, but from Exodus chapter 20, verse number 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, neither your, uh, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. All these leaders were interested in was the visible violation of their made-up rules. Because all this verse says is a general statement about work. How many know, especially when you're not feeling well, breathing can be work? What they were accusing him of was not in the Old Testament. It spoke of doing no work and didn't give specifications about work. And the point of it wasn't the no work. The point of it was keeping the Sabbath day holy. So over the years, they had created 39 rules. And unfortunately for this, this newly healed person, the last of those, the 39th rule, was you weren't allowed to carry any possession of yours from one place to another. And here he was. thing is, and you could tell where Jesus was targeting this. There are seven times throughout the gospel that not only did Jesus heal, but he healed on the Sabbath. A Sabbath that, and we will talk about this in a few weeks, he made clear was made for man and not the other way around. The Bible does not tell people what they can or cannot do on Sundays. But Pastor, I, I've decided because God has really touched my heart, I'm not going to watch any TV on Sundays. God bless you. I will probably watch some TV today. The Bible does not tell believers what style of music they should have in his house. I've been in churches that have one style of music, one would say more traditional. I've been in churches where, quite honestly, I would need to sit many, many rows back from where the band was. It was that loud. 
It's not that one is more preferred or the other. It's not that one is more godly or over the other because the Bible isn't specific about it. And when the Bible isn't specific about something, we should not make rules out of personal convictions. The Bible does not tell believers how loud or soft things should be. Now, I got to be honest with who I am. Older I get, I long for quiet time. I just like to sit quietly. I just find it so energizing. That's who I am at this point in my life. But let's be clear. The Lord may touch you and convict you of something in a certain way, and those convictions need to be followed, but my convictions do not create mandates in other people's lives. The major theme of that commandment in Exodus was about keeping the Sabbath day holy. And what I've learned is that people can avoid all kinds of things that we think are evil and that are evil, and they're still in their heart, not keeping the day holy. People can ensure that they are in the right places on Sunday and still not keep it holy. We saw earlier in John that worship isn't about the place that you're in. It's about worshiping in your heart in spirit and in truth. He, like nearly all Jews of his time, was afraid of being reprimanded or worse from the leaders. So essentially, his answer to the question is, I'm just following what Jesus told me to do. So why do you go to church so much? Why do you read that book each day? Why do you always have to look on the bright side of things? It amazes me how people find that so annoying. I've been criticized this at my current job for years now. People will, I'll say, I'll, I'll handle something if there's a problem. And they say, no, we'll take care of it. We're not going to ask you to handle it. I go, why? Hiram, just understand. You're too nice. And it's meant as something derogatory. I'm too nice. And I, I said years ago, so you would prefer I was mean and nasty? Now, I ended the sentence there. What I wanted to say was, like all of you. But I didn't. I yielded to the strength of the Holy Spirit. Why do you have to be so nice to others, especially when they're not being nice to you? Well, for one reason, the gospel teaches me to do that. And not just teaches me, the gospel and Jesus gives me the strength to do that. Why? Because a man made me well. Jesus stepped into my life and healed me. And I'm not talking about physical issues. He stepped into my life and saved my heart and saved my soul and saved my mind and has been transforming it ever since that day. And yes, this is what he told me to do. And oh yeah, while you pick at me and complain about the positive things in my life, let's be clear. I've been made well, so I'm okay with all of this. I no longer live in fear. I no longer carry the past around with me. I no longer live a life without power. And to the point of this story, I no longer live a life without hope. There is hope in my heart. There is hope in my life. Church, I can walk again. And so can you. You can walk again. Now, those actual words have meant a lot to me every single time 
my back goes out. And then when I, it goes away and I'm better, I thank Jesus, I can walk again. But you and I can have hope each and every day, each and every moment. But the question remains, do you want to be made well? Do you want that healing? Because with that healing comes the responsibility, now take up your mat and walk. You need to leave this place of sin, where Jesus finds him later in the temple and says, you've been made well, you've been healed. Now you need to follow a life that is in keeping with the power of God that has been demonstrated in you. And so Jesus did something that's troubling to many Christians and in many churches today. He talked about sin. How many know sin is real? Because the Bible says so. Not a popular topic in the world, and sadly, not a popular topic in many churches. And the story ends with the man telling everyone about the man who made him well. I believe everybody here has a story to tell. Are our lives perfect? No, they're not. Are we still under construction as the signs have been saying at LaGuardia Airport for as long as I've been alive. <laughs> I say that because I was there recently, and it's like, you're still in the construction? Yeah, I am. But in many areas of my life, I've been made well. And because of that, I have hope. I have hope. And that's where the story is. Are you ready to tell the world that Jesus made you well. Didn't make you perfect, but he's made you well. Are you ready to tell the world about the reason for your hope? My hope is in a man, and his name is Jesus. In this hour, if any hour, God's people need to take up their mats and walk and tell their stories. I met a man who made me well. I met a man, and his name is Jesus. Stand with me, please.